This is your host, Heidi Marble. I'm very excited. I actually am in my new space and uh, really looking forward to talking to Peter Bonnie today. I would like to read you Peter's biography. By his 40s, Peter was an accomplished CEO with a specialty in navigating high-tech companies out of hot water. Just before his 50th birthday, Peter's 75-year-old mother unveiled a bombshell. His deceased father was not biological. Peter was conceived in 1945 via an anonymous sperm donor. The emotional upheaval upon learning that he was misattributed rekindled traumas long past and fueled his relentless research to find his genealogy. Over two decades, he gained an encyclopedic knowledge of the scientific, legal, and sociological history of reproductive technology as well as its practices, advances, and consequences. In Uprooted, his book, Bonnie intimately shares his personal odyssey and acquired expertise to spotlight the free market methods of distribution that conceives dozens, sometimes hundreds, of unknowing half-siblings from a single donor. His thought-provoking book reveals the inner workings and secrets of the multi-billion dollar fertility industry resulting in a richly detailed account of an ethical aspect of reproductive science that until now has not been thoroughly explored. Well, welcome, Peter. Thank you, Heidi. Yeah, I was telling you before we pressed record that I was just gripped by your book last night. And because we're speaking to the adoption community, I just wanted to highlight that I think collaboration with people that have been artificially brought into this world, for lack of a better word. We all struggle with issues of identity and history being erased from us. And so, yeah, Peter, I would just love to start with, uh, actually, if you don't mind, I'd like to read an excerpt from your book, because I think it's a great, great way to start. So here's what you said about the discovery of this news. In 1995, on the brink of turning 50, I sat in my Boston living room with my wife. I was an accomplished grown man, the so-called go-to guy. I was about to learn everything that I had told myself. Everything that led me to become the man I was was based on a secret I knew nothing about until that moment. Susan explained, your parents went to a fertility specialist affiliated with Harvard Medical School. Your mom read about him in a newspaper after several years of trying to get pregnant. The doctor diagnosed your dad as sterile. He presented them with two choices, adoption or pregnancy via sperm donor. She paused to give me a moment to digest what she was telling me and to regain my own composure. Susan spoke haltingly as her tears welled. She was clearly in a great deal of distress. I took two swallows of wine and clutched my glass. You were conceived with the help of a sperm donor. It was all hush-hush. The donor was anonymous, and I felt like a hurricane went through my soul. Wow, Peter. Tell us about that moment, because I I can't imagine. Uh, You know, misattributed was a word I never heard of until I started researching this. How do you feel uh, confusing and conflicting emotions all at the same time? How can you be happy and sad and uh, deceived and relieved? 
uh, how do you feel shame and pride all at the same time? I, I really uh, was tumultuous as the best way to put it. And I did feel like that hurricane. I can see why, Peter. And I think in the in the first part of the book, you really flesh out your childhood for us. And you talk a lot about your father's mental illness and your shame regarding that. And, and also your fear that it was being passed on to you. And this is before you understood that you were biologically not related to him. Can you talk to us more about that shame and how you've evolved in thinking about mental illness? Because I think that's a very powerful point. Yeah. Well, I think it was an identity thing. I really thought there were three experiences that helped make me the person that I had become. I had somewhat of a dysfunctional childhood. There was a lot of disruption moving. Uh, several states, 11 schools between the first and the ninth grade. Uh, my dad was sick. He had uh, unipolar depression. When he was younger, he could shake that off until he couldn't anymore. Uh, my last four years of his life, he was uh, hospitalized in and out. And then when I turned 16, he took his own life, just got tired of being sick. No, 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 nothing. The uh, College education I got from uh, the University of Massachusetts in Amherst, uh, really the first one in my family to uh, gain that kind of an education, opened many doors for me. And the uh, military experience as a special operations team leader in Vietnam helped shape my leadership style. So I was moving my life forward, believing that that was the fabric of who I was. I never questioned my DNA. Uh, the, the family, the old school Italian family, uh, uh, treated my dad's sickness as a flaw and it had to keep it quiet perhaps it would shine over on them they didn't want anything to do with that it was somewhat of an embarrassment so perhaps i grew up feeling a little flawed too inadequate in some way i had to keep that quiet it, people would abandon me like they abandoned my dad if uh, mm -hmm. if that were known that he took his life that way so this was uh, just an enormously disruptive uh, thing to my psyche and I was relieved and, and deceived all at the same time when I learned that. That's so, that's so difficult to hear, Peter. I'm so sorry you had to experience that. So let's go a little bit deeper into that because you suppressed everything for a long time. And something you said that I absolutely loved is that when you went into therapy, you were talking about, uh, or your therapist said, construct a handle so you can carry your baggage and i love that because i'm like ah that's such a great idea you're not trying to get rid of the baggage you're trying to figure out a way to manage it can yeah, you speak right. to that a little bit more how you transitioned from being somebody who suppressed everything maybe had shame around it to somebody who willingly participated in therapeutic remedies well you know the therapy thing was uh, something that i resisted uh, the uh, I saw this in both the war room as well as the boardroom, that uh, people that were needy uh, were maybe unfit for command. Uh, I was a CEO. I was a high-tech CEO, and I needed some help. So between my wife and my uh, some of my close friends, I sought a therapist, and I interviewed several folks before I found the right one who had more of a trauma specialty. And in the first uh, session with him, uh, he, he said, you know, uh, I think you hit a trifecta, son. <laughs> well, mm -hmm. trifecta, what is that? And he said, well, uh, new trauma, this identity thing you're going through, oftentimes is a catalyst uh, to resurface old trauma that you thought long past. 
So my trifecta, the identity, uh, the uh, disruptive childhood, I never grieved properly for my dad, and uh, mm-hmm. some lingering PTSD from Vietnam experience where I had a lot of anger uh, were the, the three things I had to deal with. I couldn't deal with just one of them. I had to deal with all three. So here, let's talk a little bit more about the commonalities between the adoption community and the misattributed community, because I think there are many parallels. And my vision and my hope is that there can be a collaboration and a, a an increase of our voices and the volume. Yeah. Because the way I see it, and I wonder how you feel about this, is that when your identity is erased for whatever reason, it it has psychological uh, ramifications that are lifelong. Mm-hmm. So how can you connect the two, and and what do you think about that kind of teamwork? I'm all for teamwork. I'm also for collective wisdom. Uh, in the 1930s, I learned in this uh, assisted reproductive technology uh, industry, uh, doctors began to use the term semi-adopted with their uh, patients. Uh, artificial insemination, donor insemination had a negativity attached to it. Church and state were all against it. Uh, a, a child uh, brought into the conceived by artificial insemination was considered by law uh, to be illegitimate. Mm-hmm. Uh, the parents and mother was considered to be an adulteress. It was grounds for divorce. So church and state really drove the whole practice underground. Uh, so the term semi-adoption began to be used to make it a little bit more socially acceptable to uh, to seek this kind of fertility treatment if one was uh, uh, infertile or having fertility issues. Yeah, I never heard of that term semi-adopted. And when you learned, Peter, about your truth, and a lot of adopted people have this experience when they seek reunion, it is very disruptive. What happened in those first few weeks or months of learning this? It's like a dismantling. How how were you organizing your thoughts and what did you do to cope and get through that process? Yeah. Well, in uh, in college, I majored in psychology for the wrong reasons, all right, to understand what was wrong with my dad. Uh, and I remember studying two uh, psychologists that had studied adoption and this thing called genealogical bewilderment that they had labeled. And it was very clear that I had a genealogical bewilderment absolutely raging, raging inside of me. The need, uh, a burning need that wouldn't be uh, uh, satisfied uh, to understand my genealogy Uh, was bigger than that, too. I wanted to know my genealogical medical history, uh, which was uh, totally void on my paternal side. And uh, as an only child... I really wondered, do I have any siblings? This this drove me, and uh, there were no records kept. My mother misremembered the doctor's name and, and address. I just couldn't find any any tangible evidence of my conception. So I did the only thing I could do, I thought, and I found it therapeutic, actually, and that is to do a deep dive of research into the entire history the sociological, the legal, and the scientific history of assisted reproductive technology to begin with. And uh, that that was my, my uh, starting point, if you would. Can you give us a context in time? Because this was before DNA. 
I mean, when the beginning of DNA testing was starting, but it wasn't the $99 ancestry DNA we can get today. So can you talk to us about your journey to find find your truth in that way? Well, I learned this in 1995. Uh, Google, by the way, was three years away from being founded. Uh, 23andMe, which was the first DNA test over the internet to consumers, uh, was a product in 2007. So I had uh, I had three years to go for the internet. I had 12 years to go for DNA testing. Uh, so I did the old gumshoe methods of investigation, and I was a frequent visitor at both the Boston Public Library and the Harvard School of Medicine's Library of Medical History. Mm, and I, yes, I, I came away with the the ten top secrets of uh, reproductive technology, actually. Do you happen to have those, Peter? I think it'd be really interesting to hear about that. If not, I can add them in later. Sure. Well, secret number one, uh, this actually started in the farm, animal husbandry, and and, uh, was perfected over a period of centuries by a a Russian scientist that history has uh, nicknamed Red Frankenstein. Ooh. <laughs> and I go over Red Frankenstein significantly in the in the, in my book. Artificial insemination by husband was actually first alleged in 1462 by a medieval king. Uh, the, the the rights to the throne were were significant, and uh, he he uh, lost that uh, in quotes battle, and then his half sister ended up taking his throne. That happened to be Queen Isabella of Spain. So. Wow. Um, King Henry IV, I go over his history in a great deal of detail. Um, Artificial insemination by husband was actually documented in 1790 uh, by an English physician to the the royal court. Uh, But it was uh, first documented by donor in what year, do you think? I want to say 1800s, but I have no idea. Yeah, it was in 1884. It was actually in a med school in Philadelphia under somewhat criminal circumstances. Of course. <laughs> so uh, we'll, we'll go over that in the, in the book as well. Uh, church and state really drove artificial insemination by donor underground in a shroud of secrecy as a result of the revelation of this 1884 uh, donor insemination uh issue, and that wasn't revealed until 1909. By the time that I was conceived in uh, 1945, there was an article in Time magazine that I surfaced in my research, and it was in the legal section of Time, and it was reviewing a court ruling by the Superior Court in Cook County, Illinois, that granted a husband a divorce on the grounds of adultery because the wife was artificially inseminated by a donor and the child was considered illegitimate. The title of that article was Artificial Bastards with a Question Mark. So, so this, this was really driven underground by, by church and state. And in its early practices, uh, actually throughout the 20th century, there was somewhat of a eugenics tone, not even an undertone, an overtone. Uh, to the entire process of being selected uh, to uh, be the right kind of a person. Peter, can you define eugenics for people that might not be familiar with that term? Uh, Selective breeding. 
Okay, perfect. That That's good. Yes, because I, I really wasn't familiar with that until I started doing research. So thank you. Yeah. If you want to feel a little commoditized, read about uh, the eugenics and selective breeding. By the 1950s, back to the farm, it was frozen bull semen that actually led to the uh, frozen sperm and the sperm banks and the, the wild west of gamut distribution that we have in the whole system today. Uh, 21st century science has really obsoleted the uh, practices, the 20th century practices, especially uh, donor anonymity. DNA science has basically made that sleep, but yet they still practice in 20th century uh, methodology. Uh, the fertility rates in the Western world uh, are down over the last four decades by a whopping 50%, combination of uh, environmental issues and people waiting much longer to uh, begin to uh, rear a family. So the biological clock doesn't work for them in that regard. Uh, but the uh, population of donor conceived people is up in the last decade, another 50%, five zero. So we've gone from 3,000 donor-conceived people in the 19, early 1940s to a million donor-conceived people by 2010. And by 2020, the number is more like a million five, 1,500,000, a 50% increase in a decade. So the, uh, the, the 10th secret is one that hasn't been unveiled just yet. And that is assisted reproductive technologies. Uh, new Red Frankenstein hasn't been nicknamed yet. Uh, the reason is uh, just last year, research university in Australia, one of the leading reproductive medical institutions in the world, uh, figured out how to create a human embryo from skin tissue. No sperm. No egg. So you've had the cloning of sheep and cocker spaniels. Uh, well, without any ethics ruling, science is going to continue to move well ahead of sociology. So there's an issue here. Uh, so Red Frankenstein yeah. hasn't been named just yet. So those are the the ten secrets of artificial insemination I learned in my in my research. Well, thank you for sharing that, Peter. Because I think historically we need to understand what got us to today. And that can really impact what we do going forward. So, Peter, I'd like to take a, a little turn back to when you found, when you finally found out some information about your biology. Can you talk to us about Roxanne and just give us a little bit of that story? Because it's very hopeful and exciting to, to hear about that reunion. Uh, sure. Um... There was a story leading up to this. Uh, I was in the venture capital world in uh, 2006, and uh, I learned about uh, this new startup company called 23andMe that its first product came out in 2007. And Time Magazine labeled it the innovation of the year in 2007. So by early 2008, I went ahead and I was one of the lunatic fringe, the early, early customer <laughs> of of uh, 23 and me and i learned that i wasn't northern italian i was uh, english french and a sliver of scandinavian well okay i can live with that but for 999 dollars by the way Woo! Uh, was a <laughs> price. remember uh, uh technology uh, 
works. This this was the power of a mainframe computer in uh, in the sixties uh, and seventies, and now it's uh, not a million dollar device, but it's a thousand dollar device. Well, the same thing happened in. Uh, most sciences and certainly in DNA science, the price has gone from $999 to uh, a fraction of that in, in the same terms. Uh, so uh, I was an early customer of 23andMe and they kept on adding to their database of customers. And I thought if I just wait this out, I'm going to find a paternal relative because it was none in the, in the initial. And after nine years, I was just frustrated beyond belief because I found no paternal relative in 23andMe. And my uh, now adult son and daughter uh, started talking to me about this company, Ancestry.com, that got at start doing family trees using computerized records. And in 2012, they went into the DNA field themselves and with venture capital and private equity money and a lot of expansion, they were advertising like crazy and do their, uh, grew their database well above the database of 23andMe, the, the early entrant. So by 2017, I went ahead and I, for uh, $99 list price, not $900, yes. <laughs> I, I did my DNA test of 23andMe. And, uh, Eight weeks later, I found a close relative, it said, first cousin with a question mark. And I reached out to uh, to her and with my story. And she was terrific. She said, I'm going to uh, embrace this and be your champion. And I'll find the source of my seed in your fam in my in my family tree. So uh, three weeks went by. We looked at a variety of different things and we're chasing a lot of leads. And she called me up. Uh, one day on my cell phone and said, are you sitting down? <laughs> and then gave me, gave me the whole uh, rendition of uh, her family tree and where my, where my seat came from. So the book outlines all of that. It gives me a lot of hope to know that with determination, you can find out and discover. It just shouldn't be this difficult. <laughs> yeah. I, I got lucky though, uh, Heidi, uh, uh, many people I have learned uh, reach out when they find a close relative on uh, one of these DNA sites, and there's a lot of standoffishness, uh, right. fear. You know, are you looking for something? Uh, do you want an inheritance mm -hmm. or, or what have you? Uh, so I got, I got lucky because I got embraced as opposed to I was pushed away. I was fearful that I'd be treated like a bastard child, a bastard stepchild seeking a seat on King's Court. Ooh, that's so well said. And I think that is the struggle for misattributed people as well as adopted people. When you seek reunion, you have a fantasy. And I know you mentioned in your book, you talked about like the ghost father. Yeah. And in the adoption community, we call it the ghost kingdom. It's this imaginary place that we put our family, but the reality is they often don't match. And yeah. what you find is entirely different. And it is scary to go and poke around and all that and figure out a way to be brave enough to find your answers. What advice would you give people, Peter, in the misattributed and adoption community that are getting ready to, to push go on seeking? How, how do they study themselves? What, what can you tell them? I'm all through with secrets. I found mm -hmm. uh, uh, somebody else's secret was not mine to keep. And it took me a while. Once I learned that I was donor conceived, I kept it very contained. I 
put it into a closed uh, circle. Uh, my children, my close relatives, my very closest friends all knew what, what I was going through and what, where I had come from or where I hadn't come from. Uh, <laughs> but the more I began to learn about my heritage, uh, my background, the uh, whole history of artificial insemination by donor, the more I began to open the circle up. And once I learned the source of my seed and learned about an industry that uh, is uh, so unregulated that I exposed it to a friend of mine and he said, gosh, you know, the uh, breeding of puppies has more regulatory oversight than the conception of human beings. Once I heard that and finished my story, I thought I was going to write a book on this and expose it, if you would, not just in memoir fashion, but uh, do a tell-all expose on an industry from the lens of somebody who was donor-conceived or from the lens of somebody who was misattributed to begin with. Well, well, Peter, you've accomplished that. Your book is a beautiful blend of both of those things for sure. And as we start to wrap up, Peter, is there anything that you would, if you could wish in a perfect world, what would you want to see change, both for the adoption community and the misattributed community? Obviously more regulation, but do you think artificial insemination or uh, fertility treatments have a place in our society? I know that's a hot button issue, but I'd really like to get your point of view on it. Well, you know, I'm all for science. I'm all for science to enable people to have a family that really want to have a family. And I'm all for rights. Uh, donors have rights. Uh, recipients have rights. But there's no role, no law on the book that protects the donor-conceived child. Uh, I would advocate for a donor-conceived bill of rights to, first of all, abolish donor anonymity. Uh, it's already abolished de facto anyway by DNA analysis over the internet. So why bother with that? But still, uh, there's uh, anonymity that's being practiced out there. And, and with that, I would uh, mandate the uh, requirement to genetically test a donor and to reveal the donor medical history uh, to the child as well. I would have a sibling registry so that donors, uh, so that donor conceived children know one another, uh, and then limit the number of uh, children per donor. Uh, right now, there's a situation where you can have uh, dozens, if not a hundred, uh, siblings without your knowledge and and, and the uh, there's no law saying uh, what's required so my friend once once again who bred rottweilers said you know there's more regulation more oversight to breeding puppies and there is the conception of human beings well and i i think the type of work you're doing and the adoption community is doing too to familiarize society with these practices that are really not humane yeah. Um, well, lastly, I would uh, have some real legal recourse to uh, fertility fraud. Uh, right now, mm. you can say shame, shame, it's unethical, but there's no law against it. So there's no legal recourse. Yeah, so there's no incentive to not just do anything and everything they want to do. And wow, there's a, Peter. There's a state by state by state by state initiative on these varying pieces in some states. 
but there's no federally uh, required mandate on any of this. So I, I would, I'm, I aspire for my book to help impact the legislative agenda there. Mm, yes, well, I'm sure it will, Peter. Is there anything we didn't touch on that you wanted to speak about before we go? Is there anything that you'd like to say to all the beautiful people listening out there? My book, Uprooted, Family Trauma, Unknown Origins, and the Secretive History of Artificial Insemination. You can find that on my website, www.peterjbonnie.com. That'll direct you to a number of places where you can purchase the book, and you can also go to your local bookstore. Oh, Peter, thank you. This has been such a lovely time with you, and I wish you all the luck and success. Thanks so much, Heidi. Appreciate the time. Thank you. Thank you.